It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. This is Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. And today our guest is Robert B. Adier, who has served as Dean and Anthony G. Busby Dean's Endowed Chair since 2018 at Texas A&M University School of Law. And Bobby, I took my time saying your last name because I'm always nervous I'm going to screw it up. And you told me a good way to remember it. Can you share that with us? So thanks for having me, Patty. It's really an honor to, uh, to be with you. Uh, you're a great friend and, uh, and a distinguished colleague. And so thanks for having me on. The, uh, yeah, so uh, you know, 50 years into life, I've spent a lot of my years trying to explain the name given me by my Iranian immigrant parents. But after arriving in Texas three years ago, within a week or two, I met someone and uh, gave my very complicated 5, 10, 15 minute explanation of how to pronounce it. And moments later, his wife walked up and you know, maybe 30 seconds later, uh, he said to her, this is the new dean of AM's law school. His name is Bobby, and his last name is Adie. It's like adios, but with an A at the end instead of an os. And that was it. So now that's my new Texas explanation of, uh, of how to say my name. It's adios, but with an A at the end instead of an os. It's perfect. If I knew her, I'd thank her, because now I will remember how to say that it. Uh, so you were at Emory University for 18 years, and um, I'm especially appreciative of your service to the Academy because you were Vice Dean from 2011 to 2017. I only spent three years as Vice Dean, and I think it is the worst job in legal education. <laughs> but then you transitioned to Texas as the Dean of Texas A&M. And tell me about that transition for you from an East Coast metropolitan area to Fort Worth, Texas. So, uh, as you mentioned, I had the opportunity to serve as associate dean and then as vice dean at Emory for many years and had the pleasure of serving under a couple of deans who really wanted their associate deans and vice deans to, to not only do a lot of work, like, like always, but do good work. And so empowered me in terms of I did a lot of fundraising, did a lot of budgeting, a lot of finance, a lot of uh, hiring and firing, these kinds of things. And so I had a little bit of a worry when I was going to deaning that I would um, I would get bored on occasion, or I would you know just I wouldn't be challenging enough. The, uh, now COVID took care of that. Other things helped regardless. But it turns out that my learning curve around learning Texas, learning Fort Worth, learning Texas A&M, and frankly just learning football, the uh, big time college football, was more <laughs> than enough to keep me busy. Uh, keep me busy in the meanwhile. By the time they they called me about a few months after, or texted me a few months after I got here. And it was a text that said, Bobby, great news. Uh, do you want to ride in the rodeo? No way. I said, my response was, um, was, I assume this is one of those autocorrect problems. You meant to say, do you want to ride to the rodeo? I said, and I said, in which case, no, I'm going to take Uber. And they said, ha ha, no, 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 it's serious. This is a big deal in Fort Worth. You know, they want you to ride in the grand entry of the rodeo. And I, and I said, I think this is a terrible idea. Um, I've ridden a horse once in my life when I was 12 for about 20 minutes. I said, I would say it's 50-50 chance that I'm going to die if I'm out there. I said, and unless you can promise me that if I die out there, rather than saying, did you see the schmuck 
you know, law school dean that A&M brought in, he literally couldn't ride a horse and he got killed <laughs> and will instead say, look at this guy. He came from New York via Atlanta and he gave his life in support of our way of life here in Texas and therefore write a check for 10 or $20 million. Yeah, I thought it wasn't a good idea, but they made it, made it clear to me that this was not an ask. This was a rhetorical question and I would be riding in the rodeo. And so now it's a regular, I'm a sort of an annual, annual rider. I love that story. And, you know, maybe someday when you retire, they'll put like a statue of you in Fort Worth riding in the rodeo. That was Oh, well, it's a, it's a regular part of my life. I tell people, I said, you know, the, uh, my, my tell my friends back in the East, back in New York, back in Philadelphia, et cetera. The, uh, I said, you know, I regularly wear a cowboy hat to meetings and cowboy boots and not in an ironic way. Like I, I look like it's a meeting. I look, I go, oh yeah, this is a meeting to which I wear a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. So no, it's a, but that's been fun. I mean, look, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, I, I love deaning. I mean, I think it's a great job. The, uh, and we can talk more about that. But the, uh, I think, you know, part of it is figuring out for the, your, your community of interest, be that your graduates, be that your university, be that your little physical community you are. How do you, how do you um, identify with them, even though you are usually not of them, almost by definition? Most people didn't grow up in the town where they're a dean and this kind of thing. And so that's been fun. Well, I'm happy to report that several weeks ago when I went to the San Antonio Bar Association Chili Cook-Off and was Good. invited to be a judge, Good. I bought my first pair of cowboy boots and Excellent. I loved them. I've now Excellent. worn them twice. I can't Good. wait for the next event, which I think is salsa and sangria on Saturday night with the Hispanic Law so Alumni Association. So it's fun. I don't know that I'll get to wearing a hat, but I would like Maybe to write steps. a horse. Baby steps. One Baby at a time. Steps. The, uh, well, I tell them about the boots. The one I haven't done from boots is um, I'm told that they are incredibly comfortable compared to regular shoes. Now, again, I, I haven't found that. But to be fair, if you're actually talking about women wearing high heels versus cowboy boots, hell, it's got to be more comfortable. So, yeah. So that oh, means, it is more comfortable. Plus. <laughs> yeah. So, and I want to thank you. St. Mary's owes you a debt of gratitude they probably don't know because you and I talked a lot um, when I was considering applying to St. Mary's and then becoming the dean here. And um, you were very, very supportive of me uh, just as an experienced dean, but also as an East Coast transplant to Texas. So I'm very grateful for that. I love it here. We are grateful for you. We're glad, we're glad, glad St. Mary's made the right decision to bring you. Ah, thank you. So since Texas A&M acquired the law school eight years ago, it's been incredible. The jump in reputational score, it's been the largest jump to reputational score of any law school in the U.S. And so tell us a little bit about how that happened, how intentional you've been to make that happen, um, why it is um, Texas A&M law is exploding. So the first thing I say is I want to give great credit to both the university as a whole for the for the vision they had and the commitment they made in terms of this. I want to give credit to my predecessors. The um, as dean, I arrived three years, three and a half years ago now. The uh, the acquisition was in 2013, so it had been you know there had been a stretch of time before uh, before I arrived as well. The uh, I describe it sometimes as as at once as significant and as modest a institutional transition, as you could imagine. So Texas Wesleyan is a relatively small, quite small, uh, uh, undergraduate-oriented, teaching-oriented, religiously-affiliated 
um, uh, uh, small college, basically. Uh, and A&M is, depending on the year, the largest or second or third largest university in the country, obviously public, not religiously affiliated, and very strongly tier one research oriented. So in that sense, this was a massive institutional transition and really transformation that the law school you know, has undergone over the last eight years. The common, the common thread though, and I think it's an important one, is that Texas Wesleyan thought of itself as a law school and as a, as a university, still thinks of itself as deeply connected to the community, of the community, for the community, and as, uh, and as oriented to uh, how, do we, how do we add value to our community. Texas A&M takes its land, even compared to, I think, many other public universities, takes its land grant mission incredibly seriously. The line that the, the university uses, my, the leadership uses, and I use is, our goal is to meet the needs of every Texan every day. So if you think about that as the mission of the institution, that really is a natural extension of the way that Texas Wesleyan Law School thought of, it, thought of as its mission. So for all the comp complexity of the transition, that was an important piece of it. That translated in turn into, into how, uh, after the law school was acquired, A&M thought about what it was trying to accomplish. Obviously, it was trying to accomplish um, you know, raising the bar in terms of research excellence, in terms of the quality of faculty and the caliber of faculty and their outputs, in terms of the quality of students that were being recruited and the outputs, um, employment and bar passage and, uh, and the like. But, yeah, but fundamentally, a core part of what they were also about was figuring out how does the law school uh, add maximum value to the state of Texas, to North Texas, and to, and to Fort Worth more particularly. So some of that was investing in particular program areas where there was a sense of, of need and opportunity. So significant investment in building in the IP area, um, uh, significant investment in building in the energy environment area, in the dispute resolution area, given the growing importance, obviously, of arbitration, mediation, negotiation in our, in our system. So, and now I would say again, the, the current ones on the plate are building in the health arena, health law policy and, and management, building in cybersecurity and privacy. So thinking about what are these areas where the law school can have this, uh, have this impact. So that was kind of the vision. Um, and then A&M uh, set out to say, what is the investment we need to accomplish to get there? And again, you know, being a university of the size of A&M uh, and being a university of the kind of the impact or influence or whatever you want to call it, that their, their ability to devote significant resources to that has been tremendous. So we've been able to hire great faculty over the last five, six, seven years the, uh, who have added to the faculty that we had the, uh, in all sorts of incredible ways. We have been able to recruit students that you know, we wouldn't have been able to recruit just a few years ago given the commitment to strong scholarships and, uh, and the like, and have been able to invest in programs, both kind of you know, the intellectual property, dispute resolution, energy and environment, but also building out our career operation, building out our academic support operation, building out our admissions operation in ways that allow us to, um, to do that. So it's, it, it's fun, obviously, it's a good, you know, it's a good, it, it's a good opportunity, it has its challenges, because again, you know, uh, as I met, we were talking a little bit at one point, Patty, you know, I remember about strategic planning and planning five years ahead. It's hard to plan five years ahead when, you know, you don't know what the next year or the year after will look like, but that's a good problem to have. And so I've been honored really to, to, be, to be part of that. And maybe I'll say one thing is about Texas. Um, uh, you know, Texas, every, every location has its pros and cons. Uh, one thing about Texans uh, and Texas as a whole is that 
their taste for big ideas and their taste for bold ideas and trying to do new creative entrepreneurial things is tremendous. And I, I will say I've lived in New York City, I've lived in California, I've lived in DC, Atlanta, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that. And so that really, that's a, that creates opportunities for, for all of us, You're at St. Mary's, for A&M, uh, and, for, and for others here in the state that I think are exciting. Well, I think you're exactly right. There's real truth behind the everything's bigger in Texas and the ideas are also big. So it must be amazing to be um, part of a community that is so robust statewide and considers themselves um, so connected at all times. And what I mean by that, we, we experience a good deal of that, especially here in San Antonio with our alumni base being so strong. Um, but boy, if you see an Aggie ring, I can spot them now across the room. And as soon as you know two Aggies spot each other from across the room, they are connected. What's that community like to lead, especially since you are not an Aggie? You are like an honorary rodeo riding Aggie. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying my best. The uh, as I describe it, I say like you know. So I, I, I work for AM now. I'm trying to build in Tucson. I recruit. I I create new former students. I said so. I've done everything that's required. Yeah, now I have to wait 40 or 50 years to be considered to be kind of a kissing cousin of an Aggie. So anyway, <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. The, um, it's, uh, look, it, it's an incredible, I will say, as a dean, it, it's hard to beat. I mean, it's a, um, my, my, you know, the immediate circle for any dean is, uh, is your, your, your graduates, right? When you're graduates of your institution. Yep. Okay, then there's a secondary circle that are for a law school, they're graduates of your undergrad institution who have gone into that career path. We call them Aggie lawyers, right? So they've gone to law school someplace else, but they're A&M undergrads. That group at many universities, you know, for many law schools, you know, there's some connectivity, but not that much. Here, it's almost indistinguishable. I mean, the, that group uh, thinks of A&M law school as their school. Uh, in really? a way that I never saw at any of my prior school. I, I'm, I'm scared to say that to you because now you're going to whatever, you're going to hunt that, hunt those people down and shut them off. Hunt them down. Hunt them down. Uh, but, uh, but no, no. So these, it, they really do have the undergrad affinity is so strong that it carries forward to, to it's not that they don't, they don't consider their law school. They don't, they're, the law, wherever they went to law school, it's not beloved to them. But it turns out A&M's law school and also A&M's engineering school and uh, and vet school and whatever are beloved to them as well because they are they're AM. And then that extends to then the even broader group of folks who aren't lawyers at all, or as I say, sometimes even people who hate lawyers. The, uh, and yet miraculously they're enthusiastic to support AM law school because it's AM. The, uh, so from a dean's perspective, but now let me do the more broader, the broader vantage on that is um, I used to my my joking version for the Aggies is. I tell them uh, uh, when I'm introduced someplace and to mention that I went to Princeton as an undergrad, I tell them that I, um, I, I don't usually mention the Princeton thing because among Aggies, at a minimum, I'm not sure it helps me and I'm a little worried it might hurt me. The, um, and the I can see that, that, yeah. <laughs> and then I say, I say immediately, I said, but listen, now that it was mentioned, I said, I will say this, before I came to A&M, I used to describe Princeton as having the most loyal, committed and engaged alumni of any university in the country. I said, now that I've gone to know A&M, I describe Princeton as a community college in New Jersey. The, um, so, uh, so it really is this, it is a, uh, the, the sense of connectivity and bond. You talk about the ring thing, you can recognize it. 
literally people will be a strain. The mayor, the mayor here in Fort Worth was telling the story yesterday of she was in Prague with her husband, who's, a, who's an Aggie. The, uh, and she's a graduate of the law school, the, uh, but, um, but he is an undergrad Aggie. And, uh, and uh, so he has his ring on and said this random guy like from across the square came over and said, what year are you? He, uh, <laughs> so, um, so it really is a powerful, and I give them credit. It's, you know, I, my, my, my other thing I tell the Aggies, listen, I hate to say it, but as an outsider, I have to be honest with you, you are a cult. I said, that's the bad news. I said, the good news is you're a good cult. You're the kind of cult that as a parent, you would say, you know what? You want to join a cult that's all about loyalty and excellence and integrity? Sure, go for it. The, uh, anyway, so that's been my, uh, my exposure. Well, it was good of you to bring up the word cult because we all think it, so you might as well own it. I tell it directly. And again, there's nothing, like, again, if you think of the, the core elements of a cult is you have certain rituals, you're, you know, you're, you're in it or you're not in it. It's fairly, you know, fairly binary. The, um, so, so it really has all the hallmarks. Again, it's a cult, but it's a cult that selfless service is one yeah. of the values of the cult. You know, who could argue with that? So, Absolutely. Well, and, you know, your mission as a university and a law school, meet the needs of every Texan every day. You're like the HEB of universities. I mean, it's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> and, and, you know, HEB. And you know, whatever. So depending on the thing, I want to be central market. In one way. So that's like, hey, that is maybe a good analogy. That's good. You can use that line in your next. I'm time. going to. <laughs> um, okay, so big ideas. Texas full of big ideas. Texas A&M full of big ideas. You are certainly a dean of big ideas. Um, and you made big news recently. Um, this will drop later than uh, the day after the big news. But yesterday we all read that um, the a new law school is going to serve as the front door and academic anchor of an urban campus that Texas A&M is committing to in Fort Worth. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so actually, I'm going to give I'm going to give again my my distinguished host credit for this. The uh, because I, I remember at point one point in passing, I mentioned to you that uh, the story that initially when I got here. I was within a two-day period told by the mayor of Fort Worth, the then mayor of Fort Worth, uh, when are you going to break ground on your new building? To which I said, what new building? The, wow. uh, and then was told two days later by my then provost, if you say the word building, I'll fire you on the spot. The, um, <laughs> in the face of this dilemma, what I said to you on that occasion was I said, I thought I have to go bigger. The, uh, to which you responded, that sounds like something Bobby would say, like, you know, you're told don't do this so go bigger so that that really was the framework it was um um the narrative of build a law school you know i, I hope you know I, I think every i think every law school saint mary's included should get a brand new big building from their university and the community and their donors that's i completely I, agree completely agree. Right, right, <laughs> needless to say the uh i'm a good i'm a good pitchman the um so uh so uh, but but again that is obviously a harder sell the, the audiences to whom you might sell that story is going to be different than the broader narrative, or as I were, the big, broader or bigger narrative of what are the ways in which Texas A&M, for my case, what are the ways in which Texas A&M University, which is in College Station, would benefit from a robust platform in a major urban area that creates opportunities for students, staff, and faculty, and programs to intersect with, engage more actively with industry collaborators, research collaborators, civic collaborators, nonprofit community collaborators and the like. And then conversely, uh, what is the work that that kind of 
a, a tier one research presence does for a city and a county and a region. The, um, and um, and so, uh, so the idea was if, if both of those, uh, if it was correct that A&M wins big from that and Fort Worth and Tarrant County win big from that, then it was just a matter of, you know, a bringing the pieces together and then and then proceeding from there. The first kind of major gathering that sort of was convened on this, the um, involved flying some key folks uh, from Fort Worth down to College Station the, uh, to meet with our Chancellor John Sharp, the um, who's you know again is a vision is a is, na is a man naturally pulled to vision. The uh, and so I knew that he would be you know once the idea so once he got the idea he would run with it and be his own. Uh, but uh, we sat in this room with a lot of the folks at AM and brainstormed about what are all the different things that we might AM might do with a with kind of this platform or presence in uh, in Fort Worth. And about halfway through the meeting, which was to be half an hour, I think it went about an hour and a half. But yeah, so about halfway through the meeting, there's a quiet lull in the conversation, and the chancellor says, Well, hell, Bobby, the, uh, he said, with all these other great ideas, there might not be room for the law school there anymore. And I said, <laughs> well, listen, I said, my job, I'm just a marriage broker. My job was to bring Fort Worth together with AM. Now you can just find me a, a warehouse out in the countryside someplace and we'll do our legal education thing. And needless to say, that the, uh, I, I knew that's not the way it would end, including the mayor, the then mayor, immediately said, The law school is going nowhere. The law is going to be. And of course, the chance said, The law school is not going anywhere. It'll be there. The, um, so you moved from the warehouse out in the country to the anchor of the complex. Exactly, that's exactly. that's Bobby at work right now. That, that was what I hoped for. So, so, so but, the, but the core theory really was, can we think about what are the research uh, opportunities, the academic opportunities, the thinking of like degrees and the like, and then the workforce training, certificates, executive education, whatever, that, um, that A&M might help to encourage in collaboration with industry, and frankly, in collaboration with other universities. So the premise from the outset of this has been, um, if there are program areas where we can bring in other universities that have related research interests or teaching interests or the like, that's been, that's been from the get-go of the frame of, of reference. And that's sort of the way it's set up. There's a research component to it that is meant to be research collaborations between academic, institute, academic partners from A&M and otherwise with industry. There's the law school piece of it. And then there's the kind of education alliance it's called. It's meant to be academic programs and workforce training and the like of a broad array of universities. And so that's the, that's the vision we're excited about. Oh, it's very exciting. And um, what is the timeline? I know it, that this is um, further along than just dating, but you know, you're not in the honeymoon. So <laughs> when can we think that we'll see a, a law school in Fort Worth? AM and um, uh, 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 likes to move fast. The uh, in some some ways maybe faster than a you know a boring lawyer would advise. The uh, like me, and so uh, so we'll see. Is the short answer. The uh, they uh, you know they're, they're at least it's multiple again multiple. It's a campus really, and so at least some of the pieces. Um, my guess is we will break ground sometime next year. That's actually more vague. I think if you ask AM, they might say middle of next year, and I'm like middle. Of Ooh, what's <laughs> the, um, so uh, so the uh, so breaking down on some of it. The uh, my guess is the piece that kind of we're using as the catalyst in a way is this innovation piece because the idea is that if we are getting and you know the, the announcements have noted some of the companies that want to do engage in research collaboration, more research collaboration with AM. and so uh, so we'll start there. 
and then and then uh, and then build from there. Like any project like this, there's fundraising to be done. Uh, there's you know substantive you know programming and the planning to be done. The uh, but it's not not it's not a distant future. Maybe things may change. Yeah, but at least as presently planned, all of the hope is that in the coming few years, the yeah, that we will see the entire. And then, frankly, that you know the way the 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 storyline in Fort Worth, as much as anything, was where we sit physically is in the southeast quadrant of the downtown area, in an area that has not been as vibrant in terms of economic activity and growth and development. So the hope and expectation is that this kind of coming to this area as an anchor, and we we sit right across the street. From our convention center, which is also going to go undergo a $500 million plus renovation over the next five, six years. But yeah, so that in conjunction, these two things suddenly the footprint of downtown Fort Worth, not doubles, but probably increases by 20 to 30 percent, because there's another whole quadrant of downtown that now is a lively, vibrant, dynamic area. So so that's the that's the vision, is that really it will it will be as a be a catalyst kind of for economic growth and development in Fort Worth and by extension in. The region as a whole meeting the needs of texans every right. texan every day right that's awesome trying. Trying. really exciting so that's the the future big news about uh texas a m law school are there other things uh, that you want to mention that you're really excited about before we conclude with our question about the future of legal education anything else about the future of texas a m law one of the things that I'd say is again, and this, this ties in very much with uh, with uh, work that you were doing there at St. Mary's. Um, the uh, um, you know, my my view and been my view for a long time. The uh, is that the future of legal education in some ways is not limited to training future lawyers. That as we as we are become a more complex society, the uh, in all sorts of good ways and bad ways. But either way, the complexity is not going to go away. The world is more complicated today than it was a decade ago. And it was more complicated 10 years ago than 20 years ago, and that will continue. Um, given that, the universe of professionals who need meaningful training and grounding in law uh, is much broader than, than future lawyers alone. And so uh, in work that I had done previously at Emory, as you mentioned, when I was there, and then actually was, was pleased to sort of whatever early on when St. Mary's was, uh, was initially talking about, about kind of, you know, doing some of that similar work in terms of Master's degrees program, master's degree programs for non-lawyers. Yeah, that was glad to sort of you know put it all on the table and really not 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 wasn't charity. It was that from my view, this is where legal education should go. And so I was excited about St. Mary's really picked that up and has run with that and doing cool things with it. And so we've done we've done similar work in that area and have uh, have invested in in building programs and staffing and support for this idea that if you're a hospital administrator or you run an oil and gas company or you work in cybersecurity, or you're in real estate, or you're in finance. And obviously, again, the, the, the list- On and on, yeah. that, right? Human resources, yeah. right? Yeah. Human resources. If you're in these areas, uh, you don't need a JD because your goal is not to practice law, but you, uh, but you, you do benefit from serious, uh, you know, serious um, uh, training and education and background and knowledge in law, regulation, compliance, uh, HR a little bit, contracting and the like. And so that's, I think, a big and exciting thing. And it's, you know, I phrase it as uh, it will always be at the center of the mission of law schools to train future lawyers. But really, if you strip it all away, our mission is not to train lawyers. Our mission is to teach law. And if the audience for teaching law in part is doctors and engineers and bankers, we ought to be doing it rather than medical schools and MBA programs and the like, because we're the experts in teaching law. So 
that's another exciting thing that I think, uh, again, not unique to us. And again, for you and I in particular, because I think of St. Mary's as one of the signature programs in the country the, uh, in that space, uh, that's, I think, a very exciting opportunity and development. Well, thank you. Um, yes, we're very excited and proud about our um, graduate law programs. And it reminds me that I've been meaning to reach out to my nine Texas colleagues, starting with you, um, since there are 10 of us in 10 deans of law schools in Texas. Um, do you think that the public would be more interested and excited about the kind of education that we're talking about, this, this legal expertise that is not to practice law, if we had a single name for the master's degree nationally? And should we as deans lead the way? I notice you've just changed your name uh, for your master's program. So no, we are, we are, we are in the midst of discussion the, of exactly that question. The, um, and, uh, and, you know, it's a challenge. And it, this is a little bit of, anytime you have a, a startup industry, there's a standard setting question. The, uh, so, uh, you know, there's a garage in Palo Alto and there's a, you know, a farmhouse in upstate New York and whatever, they, uh, they start doing something and each one adopts a certain standard. And then a few other follow this one, a few follow this one. And then they all benefit from, ultimately adopting the same standard. Now, any given one, they have invested in their standard. And so they have a, a preference for it. But at the end of the day, this is Betamax versus VHS videotapes. We all benefit from a common standard. So no, so I, I am clearly of the view that the amount of market confusion that comes from, comes from the discrepancy in names the, uh, isn't great. The, uh, but obviously, again, there's a little bit of, all right, what do we align to? I don't think it's ever, not, it's not, it doesn't have to be a mandate that everyone must do it. The, uh, but if there was some opportunity to coordinate more effectively, the, um, there, is, there is benefit in saying, okay, look, you know, this is what looks to be dominant. It makes sense. The, uh, let's let's align, uh, align around that. It tends to be, you know, we have a, we're a conservative bunch as lawyers. And so we don't take well to change always. The, uh, and so this is what we call it. The uh, is kind of, you know, looms large for us. But I do think, again, in terms of student interests, what we're trying to accomplish in terms of making sure that students are, are, getting, uh, are getting the maximum benefit from the program. In general, if I was offering a, you know, a JD degree, a new JD degree, it's true, you could call it a DJ, but that would be confusing. And you know, it would be different, right? They, uh, in ways that aren't all that helpful. So I, I'm sympathetic to the thing, but I also understand people are resistant to change. So the question is, how do we get there process-wise? Yeah, I agree. I think um, if we had a little less market confusion, then like a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Then I think the consumer becomes, um, it's more transparent for the consumer and then we can have more consistency, but it's hard to get there, as you said. Um, okay, so we're at the final question that I always ask my guests, and that is, in addition to, as you just described, teaching law to those who are not necessarily going to practice law, what do you see as the future of legal education over the next decade? And if it's different from what it's likely to be, what should it be? Okay, good. I've forgotten the second part. The, um, so one thing, I, maybe let me come back to what I mentioned a moment ago about the kind of the, the inherent conservatism of, of, of lawyers and by extension law professors and even law deans to some degree. Um, yeah, one, one thing I think is we need to embrace more of is this kind of what I call the experimentalist mindset. 
that um, uh, again, because we, we, we live and die as lawyers by the precautionary principle, there's some tendency to say, unless, until we know everything, we can't do anything, right? That's a problem because in a fast moving world, it's just not, it doesn't work. I mean, no, 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 no institution in Silicon Valley says that, right? They, they say, do we have enough information to make this gamble? And if we do, we make the gamble. And there's two possibilities. We'll be right or we'll be wrong, right? The, uh, and that's obviously sub-possible, but th that's, that's fundamentally the framework. And you got to have the ability to then say, we tried and it didn't work and we cut it off and we try again, right? That's this kind of experimentalist mindset. Absolutely. Um, I, I think more than anything else to me, uh, that will be a critical ingredient. And I don't know in the next 10 years, can we get there? I'm not sure, but what I what I would say is that um, uh, um, uh, as more and more law schools embrace that approach and mindset, there will be pressure on those law schools that don't do it to say, uh oh, we need to do this too. And there will also be more comfort with it because they will look and see, oh, look, that law school tried something. It didn't work, right? They cut it off and they survived. They lived to fight another day, right? The, um, as opposed to, oh my God, if we do this and we fail, the sky is falling kind of thing. So, so I would say again, uh, what we may see in legal education in terms of the future is this separating equilibrium, at least in the near term. There will be the schools that do experiment and those that, uh, those that uh, don't. And I hope the group that, try, that experiments is bigger, I hope obviously, because I'm, I'm, I'm biased to that. And then the, the one substantive thing that I do think again, we'll like, I think uh, we, will, we will see much more variation, I think in, uh, in uh, not just the, the standard one is delivery. And I'm sure you've heard that a lot. And so for, for no other reason that I, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to repeat what everybody else said. The, uh, I'm not going to say online. The, uh, although I do think that will be important. And obviously, again, you are, you are now the national leader in that at St. Mary's. The, uh, but um, but I, I would say again, another way to think about it, it's, it's the, um, uh, the, the, the chunking, maybe, or I'm making up that word, or the modular nature of legal education. So we have still tend to, most of our classes, tend to be a series of three or four credit classes delivered over a 12 or 13 or 14 week semester. But it turns out there's no particular magic to the nature of human knowledge as mapping into that. So I could imagine that there are law schools that have you know, all sorts of structures in which you know, there are classes, anything from a half a credit up to six credits or more, the, uh, where uh, students are in residence this semester and this semester, but then they're at a workplace for a semester or two or they're there, then that kind of, it's not, it's not radical transformation. We're not, you know, dumping out the, the Socratic method or throwing out the, that, that may happen too, but it seems to me sort of a, an intermediate step is that we acknowledge that our framework of delivery, not just the online piece, although that's important too, but in terms of how we think about the sorting of this information and how we deliver it will change, right? And we'll say, we've got to do this in this format, but then, you know, the world's your oyster, right? You can pick this up in these series of one credit things that are focused on A, B, and C. You can do, you know, some larger classes. The, and, then, and then that will map, I think, onto where the profession is going as well, right? Because if you look at where the profession mm -hmm. is going in some ways, it too is, uh, is um, it looks different. If you go, you talk about th this firm versus this firm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, two firms of 600 lawyers were basically, they look just the same, or two firms of 20 lawyers. Now they're radically different. Their partnership structures are different. Their equity structures are different. Their promotion structures are different. Their, their billing structures are different. And that in some sense, I think will work its way backward into legal education as well. 
Well, I, I think you're right. I hope you're right. And I think we have no choice as legal educators because the generation that's coming up is, you know, is learning so differently. There's such a, a tsunami of information. There's not as much, um, I think, uh, they're not as prepared to learn in the way that you and I learned in law school, maybe. So um, making adjustments is probably going to be important. And my only pushback would be you said you prepared. Prepared can have a normative connotation. They're unprepared, right? So I do think there can be some of that, but some of it is willing in the sense of they have they have a different, frankly, value structure on the yep. nature of learning and what it looks like. So I, I wouldn't necessarily, I do think some of it is, are we preparing in the K through 12 system and undergraduate? Are they, are they preparing students as well as they, I do think there's for sure that element. But I think some of it is just, there is a very different structure of the relationship with the professor. The relationship with knowledge, the understanding of why I'm acquiring, the understanding of what I'm going to do with this knowledge, the understanding of what it means to inquire that knowledge. And so I think if we are, at least again, if we're open to this experimentalist mindset, we start trying things and we see, and some of them will work and some of them won't work, but overall we move forward. Well, and from every failure, we'll learn something that will advance. It. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. It's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you. Great to be here. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.